stops here. Plug the radio in. And now for something completely different. This is the Evidence for Faith show, where we present the evidences that the Judeo-Christian worldview is actually true. Wow. Hello, everyone. My name is Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. This is the Training Center. You are here at Ground Zero at the Training Center for your Christian life. We're going to train your brain how to defend the Christian faith. That's what we'll be doing today. Today, Keith, we're going to be doing a, a very interesting uh, show, I believe, in that we're going to give uh, our believers uh, some examples of uh, great arguments for the existence of God. Absolutely. Uh, before we get into that, though, I'd like to uh, give a quote uh, from Psalms, uh, specifically Psalm 14, verses 1 and 2, and it says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, and there is no one who does good. So, uh, Psalm 14, verse 2 says this, however, The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. So if there's anybody out there who is truly seeking, this show is really for you. And if you found God, but you'd like to be able to share him with other people, You'll get training here on how you can do that, especially today we're going to be talking about the evidences for God's existence. If you'd like to join in the conversation, you can call us at 609-398-1020, or if you'd like to disagree with us and challenge us, we know we have several atheists who listen, so if you have an objection, you think we are missing a point, call us and let us know. Also, if you'd like to hear me speaking, I will be speaking one last time this Wednesday at uh, Victory Bible Church in Hamilton. It's 816 South Egg Harbor Road, and at 7 p.m. Uh, we open with a session in prayer, and then I'll be uh, speaking. Um, so if you'd like to come out and uh, listen to me, that is this coming Wednesday. I guess we should say Happy Valentine's to everybody. Yes, happy Valentine's yeah. Day to everyone listening, and of course, your uh, a significant other, of course, um, and I hope that you did something very special for your spouse, or your girlfriend, or your boyfriend, whatever the case may be. So a special shout out to the lovely and gracious Nancy Kendricks. And my beautiful bride, Pat. There you go. Now, Mike, we did get another question. Um, I got an email with an interesting question. I actually wish I'd gotten more explanation onto this question, but uh, let's address it if best we can, not knowing a uh, little more details. But it, the question is, do you need a concept of God to accept organic, and then in parentheses, Darwinian, evolution? Okay, Do you need a concept of God to accept organic Darwinian evolution? So that's an interesting question. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure if the person means that if Darwinism is true, the molecules to man, uh, if, you can, if God exists, 
or if the person is asking the question, um, does God make evolution happen? The molecules to man version. So, I don't know. What do you think? How would you respond to that? Well, the the, the question can be taken a, a number of different ways, but I, I think what the emailer is trying to ask us is um, relative to uh, theistic evolution, okay? If you believe in God and that God created everything in all forms of life, can evolution still happen, okay? And I, I think that the answer is yes, we all believe that there is evolutionary pressures put on all species. Right. The but micro. In that, in that sense, exactly. We're talking about microevolution, mm-hmm. not macroevolution. In order to believe in the true molecules to man, you have to believe that life sprang from nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we all know from a scientific perspective that that is technically impossible. You cannot have life springing from organic nothingness, mm-hmm. you know, the so-called primordial soup, mm-hmm. because the the chances of all of the right base pairs and all of the components of the base pairs of DNA lining up perfectly normally within the confines of a cell wall where the environment can be controlled is virtually impossible. Actually, absolutely impossible. I'm not going to yeah. say virtually. I'm going to say absolutely impossible. Right. Even if you add billions and billions and billions of years as the ingredient factor, mm-hmm. um, it's still technically impossible. Yep. And and if you take it the other way, then I would say then the answer is no. If, if Darwinian evolution did actually happen, then in that sense, then you don't need God. The question was, do you need God? No, you don't. You don't need God. If, if according to evolution, everything started from nothing and just came into being and um, uh, you know, was self-building, um, uh, uh, then what do you need a builder for? What do you need a watchmaker if the watch makes itself? Right. And, so. and the, the key ingredient here, folks, is to understand the difference between macroevolution and microevolution. Right. Microevolution is something that Darwin was pretty convincing in his presentation in his book that was written in 1859, yeah. The Origin of the Species. Now, realize also that Charles Darwin never, ever intended in his book, his original work, to show where life came from or how life started. Right. Okay. What he was talking about were the uh, environmental pressures, let's say on a finch's beak or whatever, that caused that beak to be either short and squat and powerful or longer, depending on what the environment was presenting, you know, as far as drought and and rainfall and the number of berries and the hardness of the berries or the nuts and and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yes, there is some micro change in the finch's beak. But again, these were already pre-programmed in the genetic DNA, and then variations occur right. and are expressed. Right. But this is not something that's created from the very uh, essence of that primordial soup. Right. This is pre- pre-programmed stuff in the DNA that was created from the very beginning. Yep. And so we could call it adaptation. Mm-hmm. It's just what species need to survive in different climates. Right. You know, there's climate change, right? And then so species need this variation in order to survive. Right. And of course, we all know that as natural selection. But remember that this is microevolution, not macroevolution. Macroevolution would be, uh, you know, something coming forth uh, from the, the primordial soup uh, molecules, mm-hmm. and then you have a dog. Yeah, right. Even even with billions of years, that is impossible because the DNA structure cannot 
perpetuate itself outside of a living cell without the pre-programmed nature of DNA to begin with. Mm -hmm. There had to be a designer, a grand designer, to put that DNA in place. Well, we hope we're not making people think too hard by talking about these topics, but it is good to think hard. I brought along a a quote um, from a professor of philosophy by the name of Jay Wood, and I think it's very appropriate to what we're trying to do on this show. We're trying to help Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. And here's what uh, Dr. Wood says. Your intellectual life is important for the simple reason that your very character, the kind of person you are and are becoming, is at stake. Careful oversight of our intellectual lives is imperative if we are to think well, and thinking well is an indispensable ingredient to living well. Mm. So that's a great quote and uh, could be like a, a, a motto for our, our show, what we're trying to trying to do. Now, what about the people who say, well, you know, I don't need all that evidence. I have faith. You know, people do say that. They say, I have faith in God, and, and, and in a sense, you're almost doing me a disservice because if you give me evidence that God exists, then that takes away faith from me. Yeah, but First Peter tells us that we have to be prepared to give a reason for that faith. Absolutely. And if a non-believer asks you, how can you have that quote, blind faith, end quote. You have to be able to give them a reason um, and use the intellectual arguments that are available. And these are some of the things that we talk about on this show. That's right. That's right. Yeah. um, You know, that that view of faith um, kind of reduces Christianity to just um, religious wishful thinking. And that's not really what Christianity is about. I got an email from Greg Kukul, Stand to Reason ministry, and, and it's which is a great ministry if people are familiar with it. It's also an apologetics ministry. And uh, he says um, that this will never work. Someone once said, the heart cannot believe that which the mind rejects. If you're not confident that the message of Scripture is actually true, then you can't believe it even if you tried. Mm. So there's no point in pretending to believe in something that you think there's no evidence for, because ultimately you really won't believe it um, at the bottom line. Here, here's uh, the last part of his email says, also the biblical word for faith, pistis, that's the Greek word, doesn't mean wishing, it means active trust, and trust cannot be conjured up or manufactured, it must be earned. You can't exercise the kind of faith that the Bible has in mind unless you're reasonably sure that some particular things are true. In fact, I suggest, and this is uh, Greg Kukul again, you completely ban the phrase leap of faith from your vocabulary. Biblical faith is based on knowledge, not wishing or blind leaps. Knowledge builds confidence, and confidence leads to trust, the kind of faith God is interested in is not wishing, it's trust based on knowing, a sure confidence grounded in evidence. You know, Keith, one of the uh, things uh, in the context of uh, Kukul's ministry is that our kids, as they graduate from high school, coming from the church and going to a secular college, they have a faith, but it's a hollow and an incomplete faith, and their faith gets totally, totally dismantled in the academic setting. And then they come back with nothing. 
And some of the uh, one of the recent studies actually of kids who lose their faith actually showed that they're beginning to doubt in the junior high mm-hmm. and high school level, and that actually those who who don't come back to church anymore, uh, actually only ten percent of them. Um, started doubting in college. So they're well on their way. By the time they leave your house, they're well on the way to doubting because they're just bombarded daily with the evolutionist secular viewpoint. So we're going to give you the evidence that you can share with your kids and share with others. So, but, you know, one of the reasons that we we uh, have for giving the evidence for the existence of God um, you know, it's not just so that you can teach other people. It's not just so that you can use it for witnessing or talking to your kids, but it's actually also for your personal knowledge as a Christian. You know, for because every, all of us go through times when we have, you know, through dark times, when we have uh, times of maybe unanswered prayer, uh, times of temptation or times of suffering or pain, a death in the family or some other tragedy. And it's very important that Christians be able to rethink their position, you know, to start from scratch. And, you know, those quiet times when you're really wondering what's going on in your life, and you can think, you know, there are certain things that I know are absolutely true. And set, you know, maybe the existence of God sure. or the reliability of Scripture. And, and, you know, Keith, Christianity is really a faith that's committed to the reasonableness of its propositions. Right. You know, there, there are certain revelations that we can count on, whether it's prophetic or biblical uh, or even the, the resurrection itself. These things that are, that are, are uh, talked about on this show have a historical context or uh, a reason and uh, we're committed to uh, bringing those uh, reasons and the reasonableness of, of the faith to the air so that people can can grow spiritually and be able to witness and share with non-believers as well as reinforce their own thoughts so that they can grow and let, let the things that they come to know and believe as factual and true settle in their own soul and make them stronger believers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you've been listening to, or you are listening to, Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can reach us at 609-398-1020. You can also check us out online at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence in the number four, faith.com. We have archived our old uh, radio programs, and we have bio uh, information. We have speaking engagement information. And you can also email us that way at, from the website. Well, Keith, I'm going to ask you a question to get the ball rolling on this show. All right. Okay, there's over 350 known religions in the world. Why should I pick Christianity? Okay. I mean, it's a reasonable question. Why, do, why should I think that your faith is the best one out there, and why should I believe what you believe? All right. Well, in answering that question, um, let's lay out a three-step process. Okay, we're going to lay out the argument for why someone ought to seriously consider becoming a Christian. Okay, so the, in the first step, what I would do is I would argue for the existence of God. Okay, and that will take people a long way right off the bat, especially people who've been raised in a, in a Christian environment, uh, in a community just as I have. You know, I, was, I went to church 
uh, when I was a child. And even though I was, uh, you know, back and forth from atheism to uh, agnostic, uh, you know, I still learned about the Bible. I learned about Christianity. I knew, you know, what the Christians claimed. I just didn't know whether it was true or not. Once somebody explained to me and proved to me, not just told me, but proved it through evidence that God actually existed, immediately I wanted to become a Christian. So sometimes that alone is enough, but that's certainly the first step. And so how do we do that? How do we, um, what kinds of ways can we argue for God's existence? Well, Go ahead. We, we can we can start with just taking a look around the world, right? Okay, what do we see, and what would make sense as to well, wow, this is a God thing. God must have done this. I can see God in nature. I can see natural order. I can see design. I can see things that go well beyond the primordial soup, with you know chance happenings and and uh, billions and billions of years. So there's great evidences in the natural world that we can see if we're open to looking for them. Right. You're talking about the beauty, like, of the stars, and um, the and if you take a microscope and you look down inside the cell and you see these wonderful nanotechnology machines, that's the kind of thing you're talking about. Well, and I'll give you a specific case relative to my own journey. In 1982, I was scuba diving, taking scuba diving lessons down in the Keys, and I was submerged in this vast array of new creatures, new flora, new fauna, uh, you know, coral formations, colors. And I'm looking around and I'm saying, wow, this could make me believe in God. Now, the earth is 75% covered with water. This is a whole new world that was opened up to mm-hmm. me. And my eyes were, were wide open and I was taking it in. And I remember distinctly saying to myself, wow, this could make me believe in God. So that was just general revelation you right. know, based on nature. That's right. So, so the arguments that we'll be covering today and in the future are going to give us this look at what we can know outside of the Bible. We're not talking about looking in the Bible and saying, oh, okay, the Bible says God exists. No, we're talking about outside of the Bible, before ever looking into the Bible, what can we learn about God? And it results in a kind of ethical monotheism, okay? It results in learning that there is a single God um, and that he is a a God who cares about right and wrong. So you call that ethical monotheism. It it results in we can learn that he's personal and that he's good. He's not an evil uh, God and he's not an impersonal force. So the arguments that that we would do in this um, making a case for why somebody should become a Christian um, don't prove that we've got the Christian God. Um, it's the same kind of God that, um, say, a Jewish person would believe in, or maybe a, a Muslim would also argue that they have that same kind of God, or a deist even. So it gets you only so far, but it, at least it gets you that far. Then the second step, the first step is arguing for God's existence, and the second step is formulating some kind of criteria for how to choose amongst the world's religions. Okay. Now, one of the things that we have to be careful of, since we have so many choices out there, is that we have to really apply some criteria, Mm -hmm. because we have to narrow down these 300-plus-odd religions 
to figure out which one is really true, because they can't all be true. Mm -hmm. And one of the mantras that we hear today is, well, your religion is good for you, and my religion is good for me, and I, you know, it's good for you, you just keep what you're doing, and I'll just do what I'm doing, because it works for me. Right. Well, you know what? One of us is wrong. Mm -hmm. You can't have everybody correct in their choice of religion. What? Which one is the true religion? Which one is the correct religion? And that's really what we want to get to and, uh, during this show. And because of that problem of this, you know, so much out there, many people will take a kind of a smorgasbord approach to religion, and they'll say, well, I like this about Christianity, but I like this about Buddhism, mm. you know, and I like this something else about Islam. So I they pick and choose and, um, you know, bring it into their life, kind of make an eclectic uh, creation of their own religion. And, you know, a perfect example of that is Shirley MacLaine in her New Age movement. Uh, they take a little bit of Buddha, they take a little bit of the Quran, they take a little bit of Jesus, they take a little little this, little of that, and presto, they have their own religion. But you know what? It fits exactly what you would expect it to fit, right. in that they, they choose what they like. Right. They, have to, they don't have to make any changes in their lifestyle, in their life, they don't have to make any major commitments. Uh, because they've patterned it against their own personality. Right. Yeah. Th- yeah. This is a very important point. Let's let's not miss that. Um, that you know, it it seems they seem to develop their own picture of God. Mm-hmm. You know, but it guess what? It happens to look like them. So if they're you know an ardent uh, Republican, well, guess what? The God that they generate off the smorgasbord happens to be a Republican. You know, or uh, any other kind of criteria that you want to make, it it happens to look like them. That's an amazing they, thing. They create their own God in their own image. Yeah, I understand. We have a phone call, John. Hello, state your name, Hi guys. Hi, George, calling. Hi, Hi George. George. I was just uh, I was very uh, interested in the show and uh, deep believer in God and stuff. And uh, just want to tell you about an experience that I had teaching. I was an educator and. Uh, taught in a parochial school, and at the time we didn't really have substitute teachers, so if someone was out, you would substitute for them, and they would substitute for you. Anyhow, I got called into a religion class and to teach, and, you know, introduce myself and stuff, and um, the first question that one of the students asked, which was very challenging, and said, uh, Sir, in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God said, let there be light on the first day. But he didn't create the sun and the moon and the stars to the third day. How could there have been light on the third, you know, on the first day? And uh, it was very challenging. I said, well, you know, I don't know if he was talking about uh, 24 hours in those days, or he did say, I am the light, but quite frankly, it did startle me. So I didn't know whether you guys had some talk about that. All right. Okay. Well, great, George. I appreciate the question. Yeah, you know, that that does come up uh, occasionally as to what what happened in during that first week of creation and, you know, what's the issue with light when there's no sun. But you know what? Don't scientists tell us that that was what happened with their, their version of the Big Bang, right? Didn't light, wasn't there energy, wasn't there photons before there was a sun or any sun? Yes. There was. There was light before there was the accumulation of matter into suns. So there's no reason to think that you can't have light without uh, an actual body 
you know, um, if God very says... Very good, yeah. And I said, you know, you better work till your regular teacher gets back. <laughs> I didn't know the answer. Now, was but, this, what grade was this? Because I'm, was uh, this it college? Was like in the high school level, you know, like a okay. sophomore in high school, uh-huh. I think. Uh-huh. And very challenging, and I guess just like the students are today, and yep. uh, we they, all have those kinds of feelings. And I was trying to dispel the Big Bang Theory, quite uh-huh. frankly, in terms of, I, you know, I don't necessarily believe in that. But, right. Uh, I just thought I'd call. It was like a good thing, and, and um, it's a fun thing, you know, and I'm a deeply religious person. Yep. Well, then... Thank you. Uh, yeah, you bet. Thanks, George. Thanks for your call. Uh, call again. So, um... You know, and if you don't believe in the Big Bang Theory, um, you can still believe, you know, God is the kind of God that can do miraculous things. So the fact that God created light before there was the sun, really, you know, that's okay in the Christian worldview. You know, Keith, one of the things that I I do uh, like to use within the framework of the Big Bang Theory is that you can actually discuss this uh, in a reasonable way with a uh, a secular humanist, Mm -hmm. somebody who's devoid of God or devoid of religion. And uh, I like to bring up the point that um, the Big Bang Theory is their own attempt to explain the beginning of the universe from nothing, okay? Um, And we're going to get a little bit more into that later in the show, but... Uh, there clearly was a beginning, okay? And by extension, we argue that there had to be a beginner because you can't create nothing out of nothing. Right. There had to be something. There had to be a causer, a mover, a shaker, a beginner, a creator. Right. Okay, so in that sense, you can use that as a springboard into the Big Bang. And of course, uh, I call it the Big Flash on purpose, because in space there's a vacuum. You don't have noise. You don't have mm-hmm. the big bang per se. There's a big flash of light, and I, I try to frame this also in the context of Einstein's equation: e is equal to m c squared, which means the energy is equal to mass. That would be the mass of the planets, the stars, the right. mass of everything in the universe, yep. times the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second squared, which is an astronomical number, huge, right. huge number. So. If you look at that in the context of energy and mass and light, yes, there was a big flash, right. and that's my news flash to the uh, the secular humanists. There you go. So even even the Big Bang appears to match the uh, Genesis uh, story. So now we were talking about arguing, making a case for why I'm a Christian, and we said, well, you know, we would argue that. Um, you know, for God's existence, from natural theology, from things around us, and then try and formulate some criteria for choosing among the world's religions, because what people do is that they try to pick and choose and create their own religion, or they just go with what they like. And it, you know, it's very convenient because it allows uh, you know, a situation where you don't have to change because if if you if it's too uncomfortable for you to change, then you just change religions. You know, I like this other part of this religion that doesn't require me to change. And Mike, that's just like me going doctor shopping. You know, mm-hmm. if I come to you and I say I've got this ache here in the in my heart, you know, there's this ache, and you tell me that I have to start exercising and eating right, or I'm going to face surgery. Well, guess what? I don't like that. I'll go to a different doctor. You know, is that the right thing to do? Uh, step it up a notch, taking that analogy one step further. Let's say we discover that you have a cancer, Keith. 
and you don't like what I have to say. You need to have surgery. You need to have chemo. You're mm-hmm. going to lose your hair. You're going to lose weight. Mm-hmm. You're going to be throwing up all day long. I definitely don't like that. So you, you go to a different doctor, and he says, no, 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 no. We can treat you with all natural stuff. That way you don't get sick. You can keep your hair. You won't lose weight. And guess what? If you make that choice, you're making the wrong choice because you know what? You're going to die. Right, right. Okay, so we know that there are certain choices that we can make. Some are not going to be terribly convenient or terribly comfortable, and they may not fit the lifestyle that we want, but we know in our hearts that one choice is the correct choice, and that's what we're here to tell you about today, folks. That's right. So so all these religions cannot be uh, true simultaneously because they're so different. Um now, maybe you could argue that they are all false, in which case, you know, then atheism reigns supreme, and that's a possibility. But it's not possible that all these different contradictory religions could be true at the same time. Now, here's an illustration that uh, J.P. Moreland uh, gave, uh, is given in a talk. Uh, he describes asking the question, what does my mother look like? Okay. Um, let's so, see. I, I've never met your mother, Keith, right. but I would imagine that she's maybe uh, five six. Uh, she's probably got uh, totally white hair based on your age, and I'm just adding right. another thirty years. Right. And uh, you're very thinly built, so I imagine that she's extremely thin um, and very intelligent and very articulate. Okay. Now, what if I ask John? John, what do you think my mother looks like? And he tells me that, well, she's five foot two, she weighs 350 pounds, and has brown hair. Okay, now, could those both be true? No, they can't no. simultaneously be true. Exactly. Why? Because they contradict each other. And religions contradict each other in this uh, same way. They, one says God is personal, one says God's not personal. One says Jesus is God. Another one says Jesus is not God. One says there's only one God. One says there's many gods. So these are totally, actually contradictory. Uh, You know, it's true that many religions are similar in a lot of their ethical teachings, but beyond that, there's very little similarity in religions. So we have to have some guidelines, some criteria as to how we can distinguish uh, the differences between the religions. So how do we do that? Well... Um, we have to come up with a a picture of God where there's some evidence that that gives us an idea of what God really is. And one of the pictures that we can get is written in Revelation, you know, general Revelation, Mm -hmm. in the the world, what we can see. And Mm -hmm. it should harmonize with what we already know about God from natural revelation, okay? And that means that we should be able to see that truth harmonizing with what our everyday experience is all about. Right. If the if God has revealed himself in a holy book, like the, uh, you know, uh, the Gita or the Quran, um, that book ought to harmonize with what we've already looked at in natural theology. We already looked at the universe and we saw certain things about God, so it should match up with that. So... Uh, you know that you can't just approach the holy books of the world's religions with a blank slate. You just can't approach it as if you don't know anything about the universe. In fact, we do know lots of things about the universe that would have an effect. And if these holy books are telling us something that's wrong, that something that's incorrect about the universe, then uh, you know we should we know to discount this this uh, revelation, this this religion. Right. 
And so consequently, we have to have um, a knowledge that God is a certain kind of thing. And if the religion, whichever one you're looking at, seems to contraindicate, contra, uh, contradict that um, and say things that are otherwise known to be true by you, at least, then you have to realize that that religion runs contrary to what is really known, and your conclusion should be that that religion is actually false. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. For instance, if, um, you know, since we can learn, and we'll get to this in uh, in the future, we can learn that God is a personal God. He's not some kind of force. We can learn by studying nature that God is conscious, that he has volition and thoughts. So um, now if you read a religious book and it doesn't describe God that way, then you know that's not correct. So, so that's the first criteria, is does the God of that religion match with what we can learn by studying the universe? The second criteria um, is that the religion ought to uh, profoundly address the issues that we as humans face, the, the human condition and the problems that we face as humans. Yeah, and these these things that we kind of generally lump under the human condition, uh, it really involve uh, the following. Uh, these are things that we, we wrestle with really on a daily uh, basis. Uh, and basically, the religion that you're delving into should really address all of those issues that you're you're wrestling with, struggling with, and so forth. Um, uh, and these would be a sense of, of moral shame or guilt, uh, thirsting and hungering for the true meaning of life. And also the question is, well, what happens to me when I die? Mm-hmm. You know, they should address all of these things. Right. Yeah. Humans experience a real—you uh, can say, uh, put it down as a threefold alienation. You know, human the human condition is that we find ourselves— alienated from God. You know, in a quiet moments, we realize that that we are something different from God. We are alienated from him. We also find that we're alienated from other people. You know, there are wars and fights, and we find ourselves fighting with other people all the time. And then we also find that we're alienated from ourselves. So, you know, you can, a person will say, I'm, you know, I'm beside myself, you know, and he really means it. You know, we are alienated from where there's a struggle going on inside of us constantly. So, so, uh, so a religion that's true ought to address some of these issues that you mentioned, the guilt and everything, and this alienation that goes on. You know, it, it has to be there. Otherwise, you know, you have to consider that maybe this religion isn't true. Yeah, and one of the things that I find fascinating within this uh, framework, Keith, is that uh, if you go back to the beginning of time, recorded time, every culture has had at its very root animal sacrifice. Mm-hmm. What are they trying to do? They're trying to get right with God. That's right. You know, you can go back to Genesis, okay? You can go back to... Um, many of the uh, ancient uh, religions and even the the sacrifices of of children to the god Molech, mm-hmm. you know, but there were always sacrifices to try to get right with their god. Yeah, th- this is a you know it's a little known fact that Hinduism 
Um, Hinduism had a big change about 4,000 years ago where it became uh, vegetarian and kind of gave a, a lot of um, uh, rights to animals and you know uh, equality with animals. But prior to that, the early uh, form of religion in the, in that area was uh, had involved uh, animal sacrifices. And there's actually are segments uh, in India where they still do animal sacrifices and it occasionally makes the news because it's a little disturbing for us to think that a place where there's all these vegetarians uh, you know that they are um, chopping off the heads of monkeys uh, as part of a religious ceremony Mm -hmm. and it goes back to the very original uh, religion of uh, that that place that um, you know was trying to make this sacrifice to God because they felt their strong alienation from God. And, you know, even if you go back to uh, uh, the Jew, uh, uh, Jewish religion, uh, going back in time, uh, there were animal sacrifices up until about 70 years or so after Christ's death, but none since. Mm-hmm. Uh, so animal sacrifices come into play uh, through the centuries, going back to the beginning of time. But the one different thing about the Christian religion is the difference in that a sacrifice was provided by God. Yeah, he himself became the sacrifice. And that distinguishes all other, it distinguishes Christianity from all other religions Mm -hmm. in that it's what God sacrificed. It's what God did for us instead of what man is trying to do to make things right with God. And and if you compare the teachings of Jesus to the teachings of any other leader of any religion, really his teachings transcend all others. Uh, there's no comparison, and I've done quite a bit of reading in uh, uh, other religions. And, uh, you know, it's not to say, and we're not saying that there aren't important truths in other religions. There are important truths that are there, but we're trying to uh, find criteria that we can determine which is the correct religion, if there is a correct religion. And so, that it should profoundly address the human condition, that is clearly one of the criteria. And the third, the third criteria, Keith, is, is also a very strong one. Uh, there should be evidence within this faith, this religious uh, belief set, that um, there is supernatural movements involved. There yeah. should be evidences of this mm-hmm. going back in time. Yeah, if God's there, um, you know, he ought to be making himself known. Especially if he's a personal God and he has time and, and energy and resources invested in the people that he's trying to reach, he should be manifest in those movements from day one. Including the beginning of the religion itself. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make much sense. Um, it's or at least it's unlikely for a religion to be true, if you can explain exactly how it began without any uh, involvement by God at all. So, um, you know, and and a lot of religions actually do fit that criteria. You can explain it by, you know, um, this fella got the idea that he wanted to start a new religion, and so he did. Yeah. You know. And one of the other things, if you look historically at Christianity, there really is no reason why Christianity should have survived a hundred years after Christ died, right? Because unless there were, there were so many things that were stacked up against it from succeeding mm-hmm. uh, in in uh, where where it was started, uh, obviously in uh, Jerusalem, mm-hmm. uh, but it did. And why right. was that? Because God was moving the whole time. That's right. There were miracles, and the biggest miracle of all, Jesus rising from the dead. You know, um, Buddha is still in his grave. Uh, so is Muhammad. 
but not Jesus. There's something miraculous going on. There's some, there has to be some kind of uh, acknowledgement or you know approval from God that this is the correct religion, and that would probably happen by miraculous activity, some kind of supernatural activity. But Keith, I'll just throw an argument against this. Miracles by themselves don't mean that that is the correct religion. However, if there is a supernatural component to that religion, it certainly is a strong evidence for the existence of God and being behind that religion per se. Absolutely. Well, you've been, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And we are discussing the arguments for the existence of God and trying to make a, a preliminary case for how we can do that. If you'd like to join in the conversation, uh, you can call us at 609-398-1020. All right, so let's review the three tests then for the um, uh efficacy of a religion. Okay, first, does the religion picture God in uh, as an ethical in ethical monotheistic terms? Okay, the kind of God that we find from looking at the universe. Secondly, uh, what's the depth of analysis of that religion in terms of the human condition? Okay, how well does that uh, religion uh, discuss the human condition, and is there an adequate solution to the kinds of issues and problems that we face as a human being? And then third, does it include miracles, like uh, maybe historical um, uh, miracles that have happened in the past or prophetic announcements that can be proved to have occurred uh, hundreds of years after the prophecy was given? Um, you know, for instance— Okay, Keith, I, I'm going to stop you just yeah, for a second. Yeah, I see you raising your hand. I, okay, we, we started out with 350-plus religions, mm-hmm. okay? Now, if we use these three litmus tests to, let's say, the veracity of a true, a bona fide true religion, how many have we reduced ourselves to at this point in time using these three tests, criteria? Well, we've, we're down to about three, as okay. far as I can tell. Now, you know, it's, it's tough. Um you could argue, I think I'm just thinking of Mormonism, you could argue that there were some miracles involved in Mormonism. You know, you got the appearance of an angel and uh, things like that. So, mm, maybe. But anyways, basically I'd say uh, Judaism, uh, Islam, and Christianity. Okay. Yeah. So. All right, so now we're going to try to um, figure out which way to go with these last three or four, say, choices. Right, So, so you've got... So you've got um, these three tests, uh, right, for um, the efficacy of a a religion. The next step, first was to look at the natural order and see what kind of God we find. Second was to, um, you know, uh, set a criteria and look at the religions. Do they fit these criteria? And we had three criteria. Um, And then the third step, then, is to engage in a kind of devotional experiment, Okay, and what we would do is ask the person to act as if it were true and see what happens. In other words, we've given evidence that this religion is true, so let's um, act as if it is true. Go ahead and give your life to Jesus and see what happens. So, um, 
you know, there. Now, this is not the same kind of thing that uh, in Mormonism you get, where they'll say that look in your heart, and um, if you if it feels right to you, then it then it's true. We're looking at it evidentially. You know, we're looking at you examine the scriptures and see do they match with the real order with with the natural order, and is it true? So. Um, all right, now, let's see. I think um, one of the things I wanted to mention but I, I neglected somehow was that in, in that criteria, that test for an effective religion, is we, we started to talk about the prophetic um, mm. evidences, and one of the things we also need to look at is how reliable are the um, writings, okay? How reliable are they? Like the Bhatka Vita, how how far back can you go, and do you know how accurate and how well it's been um, transmitted down through the ages? And that's another evidence that that religion would be true. And here again, I think Christianity stacks up very well. So if you throw in, I guess it, it, your question then about how many religions are you down to, um, if you throw in about the miracles and prophecy and the reliability of the documents, then I'd say you're down to one. You're down to Christianity. Okay, and I, I would agree with that, and, and I find it interesting that uh, Abraham uh, was at the core of those last three, that is uh, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Yes, that's right. And he was uh, considered to be the father of the great three religions, mm-hmm. um, but uh, the bottom line is that uh, Jesus really was the completion of what was promised to Abraham at the very beginning. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what we've described now is a way that somebody can argue um, or witness to another person in uh, how to become a Christian. So, so let's go back to that first step, looking at the natural order, looking at the universe. What can we learn about God? And we're going to get into an argument that is called the Kalam cosmological argument. Mm-hmm. And we've discussed this in the past on this show. But we want to go into it a little bit more in depth. So, um, you know, uh, this is a very strong um, argument, and it, it seems to indicate that there's something about the created order, about the universe, that makes God's existence evident or obvious. You know, there's something about the universe that if you look at it and you realize this significant point about the universe, then it follows that God must exist. Now, uh, people say all the time that there's no evidence that God exists. Well, there, there's no absolute proof right. that God exists. And the, and the operative word here is absolute proof. Yes. Um, but there are many logical reasons and arguments that can be proposed and looked at that can actually make you intellectually examine the evidences, the arguments, the right. theology, and have you come to a reasonable conclusion. And that's really what this show is all about. That's right. So so maybe um, it's true that the cosmological or the Kalam argument is not an absolute proof like 2 plus 2 equals 4. It may be not that convincing, but it's absolutely strong enough to, to so that you can know that there is a God. I mean, you know, it depends on what you, what do you mean by proof? I mean, ultimately, if you're going to say, I can't, you can't prove anything, then if you want to be a really skeptical person, you can't prove that you're, that you exist right now. 
you're just a dream. You know, you're my dream, and so you don't actually exist. Well, you know, that, it can get ridiculous, but but most of the things that we count on throughout the day, you know, you can't absolutely prove conclusively. You know, can we prove conclusively that your car is going to start uh, when we get done today? You know, can we prove that conclusively? No, no, we can't. Even if you went out there and started it right now, that wouldn't mean that it's going to start when we're done with the show. So, so you know, there are many, many things that you can't prove. You can't, I can't prove what I had for breakfast this morning, if I indeed even did have breakfast. So, but, uh, you know. You know for certain what you did have. Exactly. Yeah. I know for certain. So, so that's the kind of certainty that the, the Kalam sure. argument uh, can give the or the cosmological argument, and you know, let's let's talk about another uh, argument that we can get into with the uh, cosmological argument, and that's the observation. Okay, there really is a universe, and it exists now, right, right now. The universe exists. We know that based on pictures that we've seen by the Milky Way in the sky at night, uh, telescopic observations. I think everybody has looked at the sky. Uh, either with the naked eye or with a telescope or or whatever, and we know that it's here and now. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, so you, so what's so significant about there being a universe out there? Well, the 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 second question is: Well, did it always exist, going back to infinity, or did it have a beginning? Okay, and that's uh, the argument that we're going to get into now. You know, was it right. caused or was it uncaused? Right. And if it was caused, who caused it, or why was it caused? Yeah, did it spring into existence out of nothing? Okay, well, out of yeah, you can't have something coming out of you can't have something come out of nothing. That's right. Okay, just logically, if you're intellectually honest, it could not have sprung out of nothingness. Yeah, there's a there's a show tune, a Broadway show tune, that goes, um, uh, "Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could," you know, and that's really true. Nothing. If you if if what you mean by nothing is absolutely nothing. You know, imagine before the universe when there's absolutely nothing. Then there is absolutely nothing that could cause the universe to come into beginning. There there you know, we we'll say, "Oh, well what about a quantum fluctuation?" What what are you talking about? A fluctuation of what? There's nothing there to fluctuate. So, nothing uh, can nothing comes from nothing. So, uh, the universe can't spring into existence. So, um, what you what you then do is you know you have uh, uh, essentially a um, a supernatural argument, you know, an argument that there was something outside of the universe that must have caused it, and that's what this Kalam argument does. It 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 tries to show that it's far more reasonable to believe that. The cause that the universe was caused rather than uncaused. Well, so, more importantly, it had a beginning, mm-hmm. and you know what? Scientists all agree now that there was a beginning, and and it goes back to the Big Bang again. But more importantly, Keith, we know that the universe is expanding; it's separating itself. Itself, all all masses, all bodies, all galaxies, are going further and further apart. We know that by spectral shifting. So it had to have a beginning point, and now it's expanding further and further into outer space. So there had to be a beginning. Right. And if there was a beginning, there was something outside. There was something, some cause outside of the universe itself. So that then, since the universe is nature, 
What is outside of nature is supernature or supernatural. So it's must have it must transcend nature. It must be something bigger and greater than the universe itself in order to cause the universe. And then it's either personal or it's impersonal. Okay? So but from what we know about impersonal forces is that impersonal forces don't make decisions. Impersonal forces don't decide to begin a universe, right? Whereas obviously that is what happens. Some, some, something decided to begin the universe. If there was an impersonal God for infinity past, guess what? That's all you're left with. You don't get a universe, because an impersonal God from infinity past doesn't choose to create a universe. It doesn't choose to do anything. So, so the God, uh, the supernatural creator, beginner of the universe, had to be a chooser or a personal agent. Hmm. So anyway, we have three premises then. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have, number one, that there had to be a beginning. Okay, and I, I think that we all agree on that, uh, both secular humanists and and uh, theologians. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number two, there had to be a cause. Theologians at least believe this. I don't know about the uh, secular humanists, because they they go with billions and billions of years and chance happenings, random events. Okay, and then thirdly, uh, we believe as theologians that that there's a personal force that's operating really outside of the box on the ingredients that are within the box. Right. And so those are the those are the premises of the cosmological argument. So what we're going to do in future shows is we are going to delve into each one of those and we're going to look first at that first um, argument that the universe had a beginning and we're going to get more into it. We're going to get really uh, heavy into it with both uh, philosophical arguments that prove that the universe had a beginning, but also we're going to share some scientific, evidences, some that we've already alluded to today, that show that the universe had a beginning. So um, I hope that everyone will join us again, um, and we will continue this discussion about the cosmological argument and proving the existence of God. Uh, You've been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. This is the day, this is the hour. Show me the truth because I want to be blinded. I want to run, which way should I go? Gravity's pulling me. Have